Thank you, everybody. I hope that you can all hear me. How, how are you all doing? Are you okay? You tired? Great, great. I, I was a bit worried about being the last speaker of the day that you'd all be falling asleep, but I think the uh, guys upstairs did a good job in being sure we're all uh, proper caffeinated by now. Um, I was asked to come here and, uh, and give a talk, um, as uh, Steve mentioned a number of times I've been asked, and I, I'm, I'm very much a family man, and I, I couldn't go for, um, for quite a long time. And then they asked me um, that to come here, give a, give a talk with any topic um, possible. I could choose whatever I wanted to talk about, which is both um, exciting but also really scary, because what do we want to talk about? Do we want to talk about brewing? Do we want to talk about roasting? or talk about um, how to design a coffee shop or building a company and organizational structures and all that. But I chose a topic that's been on my mind a lot the last couple of years, um, which is what we as roasters and baristas can do to make sure we get coffee in the future. And it stems from this problem that I've experienced uh, on origin trips, both going to Guatemala or Colombia or Kenya or Ethiopia, is that in a lot of these countries, the, uh, the young people don't want to produce coffee. You see it all over the world that uh, there's, uh, you know, there's supposed to be children taking over their, um, their parents' farm, but they're not interested in this. And obviously this is a problem to us as baristas and roasters. If uh, these young farmers are not interested in taking over their coffee farm and produce coffee, we have a serious problem on our hands. And so uh, I wanted to, uh, to circle a little bit about this and try to, uh, together with you, I think this is a topic that needs to be on top of our minds because we're the ones, us baristas, in direct uh, communication with the consumers. And I think this is a topic that uh, is not as uh, sexy as talking about water or uh, <laughs> specific grinders and everything else. And, uh, and I apologize in advance if I'm going to be like a huge downer here at the end of the day. But I'll do my best to end this on a, on a positive note. Um, I have a question. Can any one of you guess what this number is? That is excellent. What is the signal? Yes! Did you hear this? Katie wins. The average age of a coffee farmer. That is exactly it. This is the average age of a coffee farmer in Colombia, to be more uh, specific. That's uh, a little higher than the average age of baristas in this room, <laughs> to be honest. And I think it's, it's uh, quite high. Uh, and I'll try to circle a little bit around this um, why this is. Um, but the main problem being that the children of these farmers just don't see a future in coffee. And why is this? What is it that's happening? Why, why is it not interesting to young farmers to take over their farms? And uh, I think they are faced with uh, numerous challenges that are quite, um, quite big, actually. The first thing is all about this. It's all about money. And there's still a lot of farmers, actually the majority of farmers, are not making an acceptable uh, income at all. Uh, many of them are making less than $1 per day. Just think about that. $1 per day, that's incredibly little money for the work that they do. Um, besides that, these young generations of farmers, they've, uh, or the young uh, children supposed to be farmers, they've seen their parents work like crazy at the farm. And they've probably seen their grandparents before them work an insane amount for very little money. And the biggest problem that I hear from farmers wherever I go is that it's not only that they get very little money, it's also that these prices are fluctuating up and down. And they're completely, for the farmers, completely impossible to predict 
They have no idea what they're going to get next year. Uh, I spoke to a farmer in uh, Kenya a few years back that really uh, stuck with me. This is uh, one of the members of a cooperative wet mill in, uh, in central Kenya, Neri, called Kieni, that we have been buying from for a number of years. And uh, this guy um, told me that five years before I went, he had been this close to uprooting all his coffee trees. Because the prices for so many years had been so bad. And he's like around 50, so he has a lot of years of uh, experience. And that year, it has just been terrible, like pretty much hitting his production cost so that there's really not any money into producing coffee. So he considered switching to another crop, finding something else, planting banana trees, or just something that would give him a more steady income. And here we are with a, with a farmer that's producing some of the, to me, best coffee in the world, hands down. He's doing a fantastic job. And yet he's considering not continuing with this. That signals to us that there's something completely broken in coffee when a farmer who produces such good quality doesn't have an incentive to keep producing this quality. Uh, he was then very happy that year because the year before, the harvest had been quite low. There had been a lot of uh, demand for uh, the quality coffees from Neri. We had bought pretty much half of the, uh, the production from uh, that particular wet mill at a very high price. And it had showed him that, hey, it can be really good. There is a future in this. So he was very happy that year. And for me, it, it really stuck on me that we need to keep pressing this. We need to make sure they get money in the hands that makes it worthwhile for them to produce coffee. A, uh, on top of this, uh, this uh, oh yeah, first, actually, this is just a graph um, showing something that I think is really important. Um, in, in nominal terms, so in, in real cash value, a farmer today, an average farmer worldwide, will earn pretty much two to three times the amount of money that a farmer in the 1960s got. But if you take inflation into account, a farmer today is actually making less money than they did in the 1960s. Think about that. Think about being a young farmer, considering going into coffee and uh, investing money into a farm or taking over your parents' farm. Do you think it would be interesting to do if you had the prospect of making less money? It's not really a, a good incentive for farmers. And on top of that, most of these farmers, as you probably all are aware, harvest once a year. There's exceptions. Colombia harvests uh, pretty much year-round, and, and uh, Kenya also has two harvests a year. But most of them get payment once a year. And that's, that's a pretty uh, weird <laughs> thing to think about. I mean, imagine if, if you're a barista, and you get your entire yearly salary once a year. Like, here's, here's July, OK, here's your yearly salary. And, and then on top of that, you didn't know what you were going to get. So to be like, oh, here's your salary. Oh, I'm sorry, it's only half of what you got last year because there's just so many people selling lattes now. I'm really sorry. It's an absurd thought to us, but that's the reality of, uh, of the farmers. On top of that, we have numerous other challenges. And global heating is, uh, is one that I really feel we need to uh, highlight. It's, it's not just something that is talked about in, uh, in uh, highbrow circles or anything. It's, it's real and it's tangible for the farmers. Uh, it's something that you see in, uh, in, for example, in Panama, is that coffee is growing higher and higher. Uh, you hear it from farmers in Kenya that uh, the, the Mount Kenya used to be covered in snow in their entire childhood, and now it's uh, not so much covered in snow. And it simply means for us that we will be running out of these wonderful, cool mountain landscapes for growing coffee in the future. Uh, for every degree that the temperature in these regions uh, rises, we'll have much less coffee production. We'll have much lower quality as well, because 
quality Arabica coffee thrives in, a, in an average temperature between 18 and 25 degrees Celsius. And that's on the rise. Um, besides that, we have, as you are probably aware, coffee leaf rust. And uh, hopefully you all heard a lot about this uh, disease. Um, no, Tim was talking a little bit about it, and it's a big problem in Colombia. It uh, has devastated up to around 40% of the entire coffee production in Latin America. One of the farms that uh, we have been working with for a number of years were, uh, knew that this was coming. They could see that, okay, coffee leaf rust is, used to be like a, a low uh, low altitude problem and, and uh, they thought for a number of years it wouldn't hit them, then they could see it started like climbing up the mountain basically. And they took measures to try and combat it, but because their neighbors didn't, it was futile. They ended up losing 90% of their harvest. They went from 400 bags three years ago to 40 bags this year. Again, think about it in a coffee shop, you're selling 400 lattes a day and then you're just selling 40. You'd go out of business. A lot of these farmers don't have a choice. They can't just uh, go out of business. So they keep trying to produce, but it's at a very, very high price for them. Besides that, today it's much, much easier for these uh, young people who, uh, who would traditionally become farmers to find other jobs. They have m many more other opportunities than they used to have 20 years ago. In, um, in Colombia, it's said that whenever they actually need three pickers, they can only hire two because the pickers are leaving for construction jobs in the cities, building roads and houses and so on. In Kenya, it's, uh, there's a lot of the coffee, the traditional coffee areas that are being sold to real estate because it's better money for a farmer to just simply sell this land and for uh, housing than to try and keep uh, seeing if he can run an effective business from uh, doing coffee. I wanna just ask how, how many of you in this room have tried to pick coffee cherries? There's quite a few of you. Do you think it's hard work? It's pretty hard work. And does any one of you know how many beans is in a, in a double espresso? Nicholas, you know. Approximately 100 beans in a double espresso. That's 50 cherries that needs to be hand-picked at the farm for you to make a double espresso. 50 times you need to pick this off. And it's probably actually more because maybe they need to pick an additional 20% because that's what's gonna be sorted out before it gets to the kind of quality that you're after. It's really, really hard work, so you can kind of understand why it might not be uh, the most fun job in the world for a farmer. On top of all these things, and one of the reasons why the, uh, the age is also climbing is uh, because there's simply no retirement for the farmers. Uh, there's hardly any of them have any kind of retirement fund or retirement plan. Uh, it's, uh, it's traditionally, it's been the kids would take over the farm, the parents would stay on the farm and sort of retire with the kids. But that's not, uh, that's not really the, uh, the case anymore. This has forced a lot of the farmers to keep working well into their 70s. So the worst case scenario in all this, in, in my view, is that we will end up with really big commercial farms in Brazil and in Vietnam, producing Robusta coffee, harvesting with machines, and I kind of don't think that's the kind of quality we're all after. That's the worst case scenario. So I painted a pretty <laughs> grim picture here. And I said I apologize in advance for being like a huge downer on this uh, event. But 
I do think that there's stuff we can do. I am, I am very much um, a positive person. I think that we can actually uh, make a difference. We can actually change this. We just need to be aware of it. And we need to work actively on addressing these uh, farmer issues. And I think it all starts with, uh, with money, basically. I think that is the biggest problem for the farmers, is that they're not getting enough cash. And farmers need to make more than just a minimum, a living wage. They need to make money where it feels like it's worthwhile for them to produce coffee. Farmers want the same thing that we want. They want a good living. They want to be able to invest in better housing, maybe buy a truck, send their kids to school or college and so on. It's not, uh, I don't think it's unfair for them to ask for these basic things that we all want. And I really, I really believe that we can do more on our part. I think we, uh, we're very good at saying that, oh, we trust that uh, whatever a roastery or so on pays a good price to the farmer. I think we need to demand more. We need to demand more transparency in all of this. I think we need to, uh, to say to uh, roasters and middlemen and so on that we want transparency. We want to know what has been paid to the farmers. And the good thing is that this is already on the way. There's lots of companies doing this already. There's uh, importers and exporters, middlemen like Nordic Approach and Collaborative and Cafe Imports will completely make it, the whole chain transparent so you can go down and you can see what has been paid to the farmer. There's roasteries like Tim, for example, and, and a handful of other roasteries, counterculture as well, who will completely show what have they paid, uh, both uh, FOB, so it's comparable, but also farm gate pricing, which I think is hugely important. We've taken uh, the step that we uh, printed the price that we pay on the bags themselves in an effort to try and put this um, problem and this uh, directly to the consumer in a way where they can, they can become aware that, hey, there's a situation here surrounding money that is not ideal. And the reason for this is not to just uh, show, oh, look how much we paid for the coffee or anything like that. The reason is to try and create this ripple effect that when people see this, maybe a few of them will start thinking, ah, oh, there's something to this with money. Like I'm paying, I don't know, 100 Danish kroners for a bag of coffee. There's, there's quite a lot of roasteries actually selling at that price. But what of that amount of money that I'm paying as a consumer has actually gone to the farmer? Because they are the entire reason we can do quality coffee. I mean, we can't just start roasting better and buying lower greens. We have to have really high quality green coffee. And I really believe that if we, uh, if we can get people to ask these questions, you know, they will start asking it uh, to themselves when they look at the supermarket and can see that they can get four bags of coffee at 100 kroners. They will start to realize, hey, maybe that's, that's not an ideal solution. Maybe that's on account of someone else. And maybe it's not the kind of quality that uh, I'm interested in, in supporting. But as I'm sure all of you know, uh, Money is not the only uh, the thing that's going to drive this forward. I think a financial incentive is incredibly important for the farmers, but uh, you know, a motivation to produce quality doesn't merely come from, uh, from getting more money. Uh, there's a great book that uh, maybe some of you have read by Daniel Pink called Drive. It, uh, if not, you, sh you should all go and read it, I think. Um, it very much illustrates what actually motivates people. And money is not a big motivation. Um, but money can be a demotivating factor when you're getting less than uh, what you should be getting, when you have a feeling that it's not fulfilling your basic needs. Anything more than that is actually not motivating. Um, I really think that when you talk to farmers, it's like they still have their head 
a little bit above water and, and sometimes a little over in terms of pricing. Like they feel like, hey, they have a good year, but it might next year, it'll go down again. Uh, and I think if we can have real meaningful relations to the farmers and secure the money year by year, we can remove that factor, that factor of fear that next year it's going to be oh so bad again. And if we can remove that and ensure them a steady income year after year after year, that's when we get the luxury that they can start to look into uh, producing even higher quality. All these things like producing organic or uh, testing out new uh, varieties and so on, that's completely a luxury to the majority of farmers out there. And last week uh, I was in Kenya and uh, talked to some farmers about uh, what kind of varieties they're planting now. And uh, a lot of them have been planting a variety called Ruru 11, which is, uh, in my book, very low in taste quality compared to the uh, two older, or, uh, I wouldn't say original, but uh, more original uh, varieties, SL28 and SL34. Uh, and they are also now planting a, a newer variety that came out in 2010 called Batian, which Again, in my book, it's not the same kind of uh, taste quality. But how do you as a roaster argue that? When the farmers are still just trying to make ends meet, how do you go and tell them, no, 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 you should be planting SL28 because my delicate taste buds really like this. It's like, it's, it's just absurd to them, you know? Uh, at least I feel like it's not something I, uh, I feel comfortable doing. And this uh, is to illustrate the, something that George Howell, uh, one of my absolute favorite uh, roasters in the world, has been saying for, I think, 30, 40 years now, that we need to get farmers out of anonymity. And what does that mean? It means that we need to make sure that when we talk about coffee, we don't just talk about that Costa Rican or a Guatemala. We need to talk about the specific farm or the specific farmer or co-op or whatever level we can get to, so that the consumers also realize that it's not just a Guatemalan coffee. It's the specific farm that has done this specific job to get the taste to this level. Because when they're still anonymous, they're still interchangeable. Then it can be any Guatemalan coffee that you as a roaster or, or barista is offering. And it doesn't merit the kind of high price that it does when you have a farmer that has produced something exceptional. For me, it means that no more uh, rock label attitude espresso blends with cool fancy names. I'm done with that. I think it's, it's, it's a track that just highlights you as a roaster and, and the blending and everything. I think we really need to showcase the work of the farmers. And then we need to engage with farmers. The reality of a lot of farmers is kind of like, imagine if you're in your coffee shop every day, doing your very best you can, making awesome shots and pouring pretty latte art. And then instead of handing it to a guest who goes, oh, that's awesome and it tastes really good, you're just handing it out through a hole in the wall, never seeing the reaction from your customer, never getting that feedback on was it good or was it not so good and so on. That's the reality for the majority of the farmers. Um, a lot of the farmers sell coffee cherries. And when they've sold the cherries to the mill or the miller, they, uh, it kind of stops for them. A lot of them actually don't really know what's happened to their coffee. In Kenya, you can go to the most amazing uh, farmers uh, and they'll invite you in for tea because they don't drink coffee themselves, but they drink a lot of tea. Again, it's absurd. But uh, I really think that, uh, that one of the benefits by having baristas and roasters and so on going to farm is not just to take a lot of pictures for the website, it's to actually engage with the farmers. You, like when we were there last week, it's incredible to see the reaction from these farmers when they get to meet you and they get to hear what you're doing with coffee and that you actually appreciate the work. 
in the exact same way that it's incredible for you guys when you have a customer coming back and said, that's the best espresso I've ever had. Like, you know how much that means to you. It, it's exactly the same for the farmers. It means a lot to them to hear that someone's actually at the other end appreciating the work that they do. And I think this is, uh, this is one of the key things that, uh, that, that I've learned is that we, we need to go there, we need to spend time with them, show them what happens to their coffee, how we do a roastery and everything. And we've, uh, on a number of occasions, we've invited some of the farmers to come visit us and see what we do at the roastery and give a talk if they feel like it to, uh, to customers. And it's not so much to, uh, to, uh, to uh, like show off uh, the farmers to the customer or anything. It's just as much to get the farmers to see like there's, there's something happening to your coffee at the other end. And the good news, to try and end this on a, on a positive note, is that I really do believe in change. I do believe that, uh, that we can change it. And uh, I think it's very much up to us and to you. And here's the really good and the really cool part about it, is that all you in this room, you're completely at the forefront of specialty coffee. And people are looking at what you're doing. They're observing it and they're liking it. As Katie was saying before, like the, the specialty coffee scene is growing tremendously. There's not a single big city in Europe now that doesn't have like a really good quality-focused coffee shops with baristas who really care about what they're doing. And to, uh, to make it even better, people are watching it and they're copying it. This is the uh, Starbucks Reserve Roastery in, uh, in Seattle. They picked every little cool bit they could from all of you guys. They took all the best bits and pieces. And just imagine if we can get all these big companies like Nestle and so on to copy our way of interacting with farmers, our way of paying farmers, and our way of having transparency on pricing to farmers. I think then we can really change things. And I'll end with that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you didn't end it as you started it. <laughs> I was like, oh, he's killing it. He's killing the mood. And nobody's going to want to drink I, wine at I the end. I was going to end with the, with the screen, the picture. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic that was, that was presentation. That my little art uh, moment there. Yeah, there's a lot of art going on in this afternoon's... Uh, yeah, there was latte art from Morton, and no, um, fantastic presentation. Uh, I'm obviously going to throw it out to questions in a moment. I've got one first because I get to ask the first one because it's nice. You do. Um, the pricing on bags, I find uh, a really interesting and brave step. I think it's um, it, it's a definite positive move. Do you find that some customers have a problem because they don't have the context? So, saying five dollars a pound to a customer goes, well, why am I paying so much for it then? I mean, have you had any of those conversations? Definitely. And it's something, when we did this, we tried to prepare our, uh, our staff, our baristas, in terms of being able to explain this. And we have one big benefit, is our pricing structure that we uh, put up from the beginning, which is like a lot of groceries will typically uh, put a percentage, I mean, a lot of business in general, put, put a percentage on their uh, cost. And that's the percentage that you'll make on the different coffees. That means that if you're buying Esmeralda at a really high price, it'll become crazy expensive. 
but uh, it also means that your uh, maybe your Brazilian coffee is considerably cheaper. We did it another way. We put a nominal amount on uh, each of the coffees. And that means that we can say to uh, to the consumer uh, without blinking that the price difference you are seeing and what you're paying for the different bags is exactly the price difference that went to the consumer or to uh, sorry to the farmer. And that means that it uh, that that they know that it's not like we are just making a lot more money in one coffee than another. Uh, so it's the same. So that gets rid of uh, some of it. The other thing is, I think anybody like I think we have a tendency to maybe think that um, that our customers are maybe a little daft. Maybe they don't really get this uh, comprehensive things. And of course, it's it's difficult to comprehend. But I th they do know that yeah, we are a business. We're a private business. We're not an NGO. They do know we need to make money. They do know we have a twenty-five percent sales tax in Denmark. Yep, you heard that right. <laughs> and uh, and they do also know that uh, that we need. You know, we have a lot of cost uh, staffing and uh, rent and roasting and so on. So we haven't really had any uh, like any big issues with it. Um, but it do seem like a moronic thing to do to put your cost on your production. Imagine if a clothing company went and put like what like the cost of production of your shirt was it's it might uh, be difficult i i i just I, i'm incredibly impressed i think it's a super brave thing and and having having to have those conversations with customers must be be really difficult sometimes when they you know to explain that context but ultimately but, customers but actually can... want to pay more money for coffee if you ask a customer do they want to pay did they want the farmer to get less? They'll never say, oh yeah, I'd like them to get a little bit less. Can you knock them down a bit? <laughs> um, nobody wants that. Um, so now I think it's a great move. Questions from the audience? Thank you. Um, I was just, uh, this relates both to the point about um, taking the farmers out of anonymity and also, uh, it also relates quite nicely to what you um, put at the end, like how, you know, kind of commodity or mass market coffee are kind of mimicking a lot of specialty coffee practices, but in a kind of top-down way, if that makes any sense. Um, where, where I live in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the UK, we've got a local-ish roaster where um, the, the coffee's being roasted at a central location, like un unknown origin probably, uh, labelled as, you know, 50% Guatemala, Antigua, 50% Ethiopia, Yegachev, but there's literally no other information other than that. Um, and for me, it's like, it, yeah, I, I don't know. I find that really infuriating because transparency is something I'm really big on. What do you think about that where it's kind of, you know, it's it's presented as one thing, like, here's this speciality coffee cup, like speciality grade coffee, it's amazing, but where did it come from? Like, it's kind of, they're kind of obfuscating it rather than... Exactly, I mean, I know, it, it pisses me off too. <laughs> it really does. It's you know, it's it's like it's masking to be something that it's it's not really. Um, and I think that's that's. Um, I hope I got this message through. I think that it needs to be consumer driven. This is what we're trying to do: is to try and, and let consumers pass it. When we opened, like it's, it's the same thing that when we opened in, in Copenhagen, there were very little demand for what we were trying to present. And you're you're trying to push something that's a quality product and and everything, but but people until they've tasted it, don't know that they want it. So there's not a demand for other coffee shops to serve it. And we were like knocking on doors and like, ah, you should buy our coffee, it's much better. And they're like, yeah, our customers are buying it anyway, so what do we do? But I think that has completely changed because now there's a huge consumer base in Copenhagen, not, not just because of us, but because there's all the really good coffee shops around. And so there's a, there's a consumer base that demands this. And that's the same thing I want to happen with, uh, with pricing. That's a consumer demand that demands transparency, that demands that, hey, it's not good enough that you just have this, as you're saying, 
completely like uh, untransparent in what are the coffees in here. I expected better from you, Clay. You've now got an adult rating on your one. I didn't think you'd swear. <laughs> Sorry about that. You can. No, no, I, I'm, in, I'm impressed too. Um, interesting question about the an an anonymity. I can say the word. That's the impressive part. Um, and again, Jotel has been saying this for like 40 years. But I've also heard the counter argument about farmer porn, you know, where you kind of abusing the farmer to sell the coffee and to overmarket it. Where does that line come? I mean, where does it kind of get to the point where you're actually exploiting it um, as opposed to trying to benefit to pay the producers more? I think uh, it's definitely crossing the line when you go to a supermarket and you see a picture on a bag of coffee of a farmer, but it's this generic picture that they just bought. And that's happening. I don't know if that happened in your country, but it's in yeah. Danish supermarkets. For me, it's revolting. That is, that is crossing the line uh, by far. I think what, uh, what we're trying to do at least is to, uh, to showcase who are the people behind the product, the, the actual people behind the product. And to say that it's not just uh, you know, whoever a farmer, it's, it's actually this person, he's like, you know, this is the mill manager. He's a huge part of producing this quality that you as a consumer uh, are experiencing. Or uh, this is the owner of the farm or whatever it is, try to bring some of these people to the front so that people also can relate to it and know that, oh, okay, it's not just a farmer, it's this guy and he has a name and he lives here. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's really key. I mean, I know you're all sick and tired of the wine analogy, but think about it again. Like majority of coffee is sold um, in supermarkets where it says these are the best beans from South America. Would you buy a wine that says these are the best grapes from Europe? I probably would, actually, yeah, but that's just me. <laughs> but you wouldn't pay a very high price, at least. I don't pay a lot, yeah. no. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I particularly love the photo in your presentation where they're all gathered around the laptop. Now, that, yeah, to that, me, is yeah, a fantastic I actually, photo. I kind of wanted to explain that photo because that was so much fun. It's uh, four years ago in the, at a, a wet mill. Uh, can't remember which one it is. It's one of the Mugaga uh, Society wet mills. And Casper uh, had been there the year before, and... Uh, we were talking and then they recognized him and they absolutely loved him, especially the girls. And, uh, and he brought out his laptop and showed them pictures from the year before and then we started showing pictures from the rosary and it was like, like having a party there. And it was really fun because these, uh, this crew is just working these, uh, all the drying tables. They are there you know, during harvest, picking out, sorting out uh, defects, turning the coffee over so it dries evenly and if it rains they have to pack it up. It's very uh, monotonous. Uh, is that the right work? Monotonous work. Uh, it's not thrilling at all, but then when these guys show up and, and there's a bit of fun happening and it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like having, you know, uh, someone fun in your coffee shop, you know, so stuff happens. It's like, hey, you live off that for the next week and where you might have been a little bored with just doing lattes. Chance for one question and then we're going to go to the panel. So um, I'm going to come the stairs. I'm not going to trip this time. <laughs> hey, um, as much as I completely hear your um, your vision of basically changing our the way we do business to make sure that the producers um, profit from it more, um, I was wondering if on your travels you've um, heard or seen of NGOs that have focused on coffee producers, coffee producing regions, and they're doing a good job? Yes, <clears throat> it's difficult. Um, I think I have a very mixed relationship to a lot of um, both NGOs and certifications and so on. 
Um, I think some of the, uh, the certifications have very good intentions, but they're not very beneficial to the farmers because they're, uh, they're, there's an amazing amount of administrative work that they have to do. And the return of investment for the farmers is very little. Um, last week I was at uh, Kiamabara and they, uh, they told me they lost the FLO, the fair trade certification this year, um, because they just hadn't put in the paperwork, but they couldn't care less because it had, it, like in their eyes, it hasn't meant anything in terms of, um, of real money back. There's, uh, there's some very good uh, groups out there that I think have done a great job. Uh, I'm not aware of all of them uh, by far, but TechnoSurf, for example, who have been a huge factor in driving um, small wet mills in Ethiopia. They also do a lot of farm education in Kenya. They, uh, I think they've been doing a really good job. But the problem sometimes with the NGOs is that at some point the funding stops, then they have to pull out. And if there's not a very clear strategy from that point for how the farmers is going to keep improving uh, and, and maintaining the work, then, uh, then sometimes things fall apart again. Please, a huge round of applause, Mr. Klaus Thompson! Thompson.